Welcome to One and Done TV. I am one of your co-hosts, Ian Hamilton. And I am the second one of your co-hosts, John Polking. And this is the podcast where we are blasting Lady Gaga's Chromatica, honey. And we are dancing the night away on the graves of shows that were gone too soon or not soon enough. Shows that only lasted one season. That's right. And today we've got a very special co-host. Yes, a person who I know adores the subject matter of our show today, Q-Force, adores the creators. We'll get into why and how, but it is the lovely, the incomparable Elise Polking. Oh, well, thank you so much. And I love this show as well. <laughs> thank you. You you don't have singular interests. You, you also like <laughs> I can like more than one thing. Yeah. Yes, you can. One of your number one fans. Where do I rank on on that list? Mm, I think it goes Q Forest John, Natalie Ian. Fair. Very fair. <laughs> yeah. You used to be higher too, which is the sad part. Well, actually, John, people use the phrase wrong. They say bottom of the totem pole, thinking that's the worst part. But actually the worst part in native culture is the top of the totem pole. So Oh, fun facts. Well, congrats. You're the top of something. <laughs> Speaking of tops. I'm a top. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of quotes from Q-Force, we are talking about 2021's Netflix show Q-Force, which was a 2021 show, but in our mangled month of 2022 spring cancellation series that we are currently in, this was canceled, what, May 2022, John? June of 2022. And- We'll get into it, but the when and how of it is still pretty confusing. But that's for an hour and 38 minutes from now. I'm calling it (laughs) specifically. But before we get into the show, Ian, what are you watching other than Q-Force? I had a very exciting weekend. Uh, We are recording this right after the movie Nope came out, and I saw it. Not only opening day, but I also saw it the next day in the big, beautiful Bullock IMAX down here in Austin. And it is a proper IMAX. And I love seeing movies there. And I got to say, it was worth it to see it twice. So the first time I saw it, I went with like, I'm trying to like make new friends down here. So I really made it a point to see it with someone I met at a party and his like friend group uh, because we hit it off about movies and we're like, oh, let's see a movie together. So we saw Nope. Meanwhile, our friends were going to see it at IMAX the next day. And I was like, you know what? I love that IMAX. I'll see it there too. And without spoilers, what I want to say about Nope really is that I've never seen a movie that so many people felt like they had to stay after the theater and as a group dissect. Hmm. Like Hmm. in both showings, people sat in their seats for a while, just like right outside of the doors, stood in a circle and talked about, 
oh, but the one part with the monkey and what about the shoe? And, you know, everyone was just sort of breaking everything down uh, in a way that was, it was really cool. Also, I loved Nope, so. That's an awesome experience that I feel like never happens. <laughs> That's amazing. I I also saw Nope, and I did it up big too. I went to the 4DX screening. So you did 4D where it like sprays stuff on you. It sprayed wind. It moved seats. There were light effects as well, and I was very skeptical about that experience, but it really did add to the the scary parts of it. And especially there's a lot of big camera movements and like looking up. It is like a movie about spectacle and to have that sort of added experience of it with all the movement and stuff that made it pretty fun. And I totally, yeah, I loved Nope. I thought it was an absolute blast and I'm still thinking about what that freaking monkey means. Oh, and the the like as a writer, the way it's constructed beginning to end where there's all these little clues in the beginning that end up paying off later. It was really well done. Really yeah. well done. Really well done. Elise, what about you? What have you been watching? A few things. The last thing I saw in theaters was Elvis, but I know you've talked about that before and I shared. Oh, but I just saw that saw it last week too. What so. did you think? It was it was a wild ride. It was yeah. bright and fast and yeah. a lot of big broad shots that zoomed in to something really quickly and it sometimes I wanted it to slow down but overall I <laughs> I thought it was awesome. Yeah, it was a spectacle. The main guy was amazing and I oh, yeah. shared most of the sentiments that John talked about. What did we disagree on? Um I mean, I don't know that I would say it was Baz Luhrmann's best movie. Mm. And I liked Great Gatsby, okay? Wow. <laughs> so I I love the music. I love the spectacle. It's, I mean, I feel like that's the one word that really describes Baz Luhrmann's movies in general, but like the fashion and all that stuff. But the main thing um, that we just finished recently uh, was The Circle. Have you watched The Circle, Ian, at all? Any Wait, of the, the, the social media show? Yes. No, I haven't. Okay. So on our honeymoon, when we were in London, we were just kind of like decompressing. And they had it on there before it ever went to Netflix here. And we watched like a half an episode. And we're like, what is this? And, and it, so this would be like four years ago, right? Yeah, when, 2018. When yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it came on like right at the beginning of the pandemic. And we've watched... Every season on Netflix, including the Brazil, Brazil and, and France, France. Um, it's it's a wild ride. And also, even though they've done so many iterations of it, they keep it's not like, OK, we know it's episode three. They're going to do this like some shows that like RuPaul's Drag Race, where they hit like every single <laughs> season, they hit their marks. And. Their formula works, and I'm so happy to learn that Natalie's watching it because it's – I love that show, and I've watched almost every season of that, too. Oh, but, yeah. If you need someone to text about with it, uh, definitely send her a text because oh, she'll talk about it all day. It's the best. <laughs> and and their formula works, but you know there's going to be a snatch game. You know there's going to be you know the one challenge where they make a music video. But with The Circle, it's – there's a different twist every season. They're always keeping you on your toes. And this season, 
one of the catfish profiles was being played by two of the Spice Girls. It was really fun. It was a really like good group of people as well. And so, yeah, it was good feel-good television when, I don't know, like I don't like watching movies like Nope and that kind of stuff because I, I have a high enough baseline level of anxiety that I don't need to get more from the content that I consume. So The Circle is a really nice, feel-good, relaxed show. It's incredibly satisfying. Yeah. Just I mean, that, I've talked about this on the podcast too, but that's how I am about music. It's like, I don't want to be pumped up. I want to be relaxed. Mm-hmm. You know, because I, I have enough of that energy inside of me where it's like, let's, I'm always just trying to tune it down. Yeah. <laughs> uh, before we move on to Elise, there's one thing I really want to talk to you about. And that is, of course, the Sarah Jessica Parker, Thomas Hayden Church Show <laughs> divorce on HBO. Uh-huh. That you, me and Melissa are the only people in the world who ever watched it. Yes. <laughs> My question is, why did we watch it, you think? <laughs> Um, for me, it was solely because of Sarah Jessica Parker, I believe. And, and he was in like George of the Jungle. So I knew him from like, mm-hmm. like a nostalgia standpoint, but I just really love, you know, I, Sex in the City is when it moved to TBS, I was watching it all the time. She was who I wanted to be. We're rewatching Sex Sarah in Jessica the- Parker, not Carrie. Right. Well, I was just going to say it was Carrie for like the fashion and like the type of life that she led. But we're rewatching Sex in the City now and I'm seeing more of how terrible of an actual person and friend she is. Um, but it is still like super nostalgic and like, oh, my gosh, these are this is what I wanted to wear. I wanted to live in New York. And, you know, she's just had the picturesque life. So literally, I think that's the only reason I watched it. I can't tell you a lot about the show itself. I don't remember a lot about it. And yeah, it was just like Molly Shannon and her and Tracy Letts. Yes. And, t- and I just liked watching them all interact. Yeah. Like, the story, right, it was like, okay, whatever's happening, who cares? Right. Do you remember how it ended, though? The main, no, I don't. The main things I remember are like Molly Shannon blowing up at Tracy Letts or like he had a heart attack or something. Yeah. Like an idiot. Uh, that was the pilot, I think. Yeah. But and the then it, ending, they lead you to believe that they're going to get back together. Yeah. But then they don't. And they're just kind of like as a divorced family hanging out. Sure. And I kind of liked that. And I didn't. I, the whole end of the show, I was like, Ugh, okay, they're going to get back together. And then they like didn't. And I was like, okay, you did one. You got me once. <laughs> Wasn't just a happy ending. And yeah, I do remember, um, I think he called the police on her because she had his kids. And Yes, that's right. That was really dramatic. He yeah. called the cops on her yes. out of like a paternity, not paternity, uh, uh, when custody. divorced. Yeah, it was like a custody thing. Yeah. But then she, this was dramatic though, because she froze their assets right on the verge of him having this big yeah. deal that was going to like set up their futures financially. Right. And then he had to, Yeah. Oh my gosh, what a show. And not, a show. not a great one, but I did watch no. it in enti- it's in its entirety. <laughs> uh, well, John, I think after that rousing divorce discussion, <laughs> it's showtime. Five, four, three, two, one, showtime! 
Q-Force is what we're talking about today, a super secret branch of the government filled entirely with queer agents that resides in West Hollywood, cast aside by a CIA alternative, and we get to follow their exploits and their world travels. It's a 10-episode comedy, adult animated. It was, I guess we'll get into a lot of what it was and how we felt about it, but I want to take a second to talk to you, Elise, about why you wanted, what drew you to the show and what made you want this to be the episode that you guest starred on? So, Ian, I'm not sure if you know a lot about this part of my life. However, Matt Rogers, who voiced Twink on the show, um, so he has a podcast called Lost Culturistas with Bo and Yang of SNL, and they've had this podcast for years. This is one of the podcasts that my sister and I listen to weekly, and it's one of the one of the other podcasts that I've listened to every episode of. You only listen to one, but go on. <laughs> you don't have to lie to the listeners. It's yeah. fine. Um, and so we've followed their careers pre-SNL for Bowen and just kind of while they were starting off at UCB and New York. And so it's been really cool to like see them in different things. So when I heard that he was going to be a writer on the show, I was really excited and like waiting for the release date. And then I heard Sean Hayes was involved, who I've been obsessed with since I was watching Will and Grace Weekly when it was airing originally. Um, so I was really excited about that. That's why I wanted to be involved in it. And that's why ultimately why I wanted to watch it. Yeah, but it was interesting, too. When the show came out in September, both of us watched uh, the pilot episode together. Mm-hmm. And then we didn't watch anything else until just now for this podcast. That's correct. Yeah. I, And I mean, I really enjoyed a lot of the show. And so I'm like thinking back to when we first got introduced to it and what didn't make that translate as well. I, I'm not quite sure. And I guess we'll dive into the psychology of it. But Ian, what about you? Did you have any familiarity with Q-Force before I sent you the article about it getting canceled? No, I mean, I vaguely recognized it from Netflix's uh, scroll, but I just, I thought it was like a gay superhero show. Uh, and it was one of those things that I'm like, how can you cancel something like this when you I don't think there was any advertisement for it no you know I don't remember seeing anything across my right my purview so I I had um, very few expectations going into this show except for that there was a lot more story than I thought there would be I thought it was just going to be a gay superhero show where every episode a superhero team, I don't know, fights a bad guy or whatever. Uh, but I was very surprised to learn that this was a serialized season that, you know, followed a story and a group of characters from A to Z where they grew and they changed and we learned about them. Uh, there was a lot more to it than I thought there would be. Yeah, it was very much structured like a James Bond film, I thought, where, you know, you had your individual missions that were in different parts of the world, but ultimately it was part of this larger cohesive story that was stretched out across all 10 of the episodes. After the pilot, 
I really thought that it was going to be that sort of each episode was going to be one of those adventures. So I I was happy to see that there was a little bit more to it just from a story structure. Yeah, because very quickly they start to change the status quo. Like, mm-hmm. um, uh, we'll talk about it. But uh, if anyone, I, I was trying to think of a way to describe the show. And I think an easy thing to say would be like gay archer. But actually, I think there's a lot of BoJack Horseman in there as well. Yeah. Uh, based on the dialogue. Like mm-hmm. this show to me, even though there's a story, even though there are very unique, individual, uh, well-rounded characters, it was so much about the one-liners to me mm-hmm. and and about the quips and about the just the way that they interact, that uh, there was a lot that it is not what you think it would be surface level. No. And it was very much to like BoJack in that there felt like there was a lot of inside baseball when it came to especially like references within the queer community. And Hollywood. And yeah. Hollywood mm-hmm. as well. And queer Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The show takes place primarily in West Hollywood too. And it really didn't seem to be taking off. And I think – one of the big things about that was the critical reception to it. I saw that it has a 29% on Rotten Tomatoes right what? now. What? I know. Wow. <laughs> but it has a 78% audience score, which is very similar to The Time Traveler's Wife, mm-hmm. uh, which is also part of our Mangled Month of Mayhem series. And yeah, I think it's really interesting to see a show like this that suffers on takeoff. And I think... When you have a platform like Netflix that is trying to serve to everyone, when you don't have that sort of overwhelming love for something right away, it feels like it can really sink into the platform. Like there's stuff I forget about all the time that pops up on Netflix for two seconds. Absolutely. Uh, John, I think this feels a little bit more like late podcast discussion to me. So can you tell me a little bit about the creators of the show? Yeah. So the show is created by Gabe Liebman, who has been a writer on Broad City, on Pen15, has really sort of been a part of what I designate as like the New York UCB crowd of the mid to late millennials, the... The Broad Cities, the the Las Culturistas, also kind of brought in with like slightly younger than the Paul Shears and the Rob Hubel group, but still very much into New York and like just outside of SNL. It seems when I was looking at the list of writers, there were a lot of people I recognized from shows that I love like Megan Amram who wrote on The Good Place and Max Silvestri. And you recognized a couple people too, didn't you? It was Guy Branham. Guy Branham. Um, but he's not New York. He's L.A. He's more of the old, I don't want to say older, but like of the Paul F. Tompkins era. Um, but he is he has a, a podcast called Pop Rocket, which is kind of similar to Lost Culturistas, where they talk about pop culture. Um, and he is very influential in the gay and comedy community as well. Mm -hmm. And it really, when you look at how the show was written and the dialogue that you were just talking about, 
it did feel like a lot of friends were trying to make each other laugh, which is the energy that I like to see in a show when it's a lot of references and it's a lot of things that not everyone's going to get, but the people that are going to get it are really going to enjoy it. Like Arrested Development, how they make one joke and then they just beat it into the ground is the wrong way to say it, but they just keep churning it out in a new, different way. You know, episode after episode, season after season, um, like that, where it's like an inside joke that just keeps on morphing. Yeah, and when I was reading an interview with Gabe Liebman in the Gay Times, where he talked about how representation and representing different parts of the queer community was really important. He said, I think it's ethically very important, but I also think you get a better understanding of the characters and the actors can bring a little bit more depth to it. It's a lived experience. And I did feel that a lot with the show and the characters too, and how they sort of grew. So maybe we take a second to talk a little bit about the characters. Yeah, absolutely. So let's start with Steve Merriweather affectionately known and unaffectionately known, I guess, as Mary throughout the show. Right. Agent Mary. It's first given to him as a as a bad nickname because mm-hmm. all of the aggro masculine dudes are like, oh, okay, Agent Mary. And then 10 years later, we the, the show time jumps very quickly. He's just Agent Mary, and that's what he's known as, and it's a name he has embraced uh, despite the way it started. And fun fact, Anna Will and Grace, Jack's character, played. so this character is played by Sean Hayes, who also played Jack and Will and Grace, who was referred to as Mary a lot there as well. It's Mary's just following him. I know. Mary's following <laughs> Sean Hayes wherever he goes. And his uh, his company, Hazy Mills, also helped produce this. He He's actually a big-time producer. He has his hands on a lot of things. Yeah. I could see that, and I could see how he wanted to get involved in this. I mean, he's the main character. He's the leader. So Mary's the valedictorian of his class of the off-brand CIA known as the AIA, and the show starts out with him being announced as valedictorian, and then it's uh, 2011, which I guess is a year after Don't Ask, Don't Tell was repealed, or however you would say that, and so he proudly announces that he's gay in front of everyone in his big moment. So then the leader of the agency very quickly says, oh, there was a mistake and gives it to the dumbest, meatheadiest guy in the audience uh, played by David Harbour instead. Yeah. And so when Mary is sort of cast asunder in front of everyone, he's like, oh, my I'm still the best in the field. Like, I'm still going to get a good assignment. And basically, he gets cast aside to West Hollywood, where nothing big or crazy ever happens. And he's there for 10 years. And during the time, he amasses a team of three other people. There is Deb, voiced by Wanda Sykes, who is sort of the mechanic, the hardware wizard, as she describes herself, a dense 195. (laughs) and she worked hard for every pound yes and she has a wife who thinks she works at pep boys and is a survivor alum side note too did you catch wanda sykes's audio being louder than everyone else's in the pilot 
I think they must have recorded it during COVID or something. And those early times when everyone was just recording at home because <laughs> sound wise, she, she was just a little bit off from everybody else. And I think that was some sort of weird COVID byproduct. For those that don't know, Ian has been sort of the audio wizard for this podcast, and I don't have the ear for that stuff. (laughs) Also, as a movie viewer, there is a filmmaker. It's like I am so sensitive to ADR lines that are poorly inserted into scenes that it takes me right out of it. So it's, it's something I'm very sensitive to for whatever reason. And it didn't take me out of this show. I just thought it was kind of, it gave some uh, timely context to it. And we also have Stat, voiced by Patty Harrison, who I know from Shrill. Mm-hmm. Patty Harrison's also a stand-up comedian. Ian, have you seen Patty Harrison in anything? Uh, no, I don't think so. I really enjoy her. She's got a very dry delivery, but is also weirdly explosive sometimes, which I thought very much fit this sort of ultra hacker character who knows how to get into everything. One of my favorite lines that Stat had was somebody was like uh, wishing Stat luck and Stat responded, luck is an HBO drama. What I have is skill. Luck is a shortly lived HBO drama, John. It's a one and done, baby. Dustin Hoffman, they killed too many horses. They killed too many horses, uh, but that was the quote. It was luck was a shortly lived HBO drama. My sincerest apologies. And I, I was should... like, one and done. We're shouting <laughs> out one and done TV. Sorry. Yeah. Also, in one episode, she wears. Uh, they're like all dressed up, and she wears. Oh, the Adams family daughter. What is her name? Wednesday. She wears like a Wednesday Adams dress. I just thought it was so funny. <laughs> Yeah, speaking of dress-up, the team is rounded out by Twink, who is the master of disguise of the group, played by the aforementioned Matt Rogers. And Twink can make himself look like anything, anyone, sound like anyone. And I thought this would be a really good time to talk about Elise's relationship with Matt Rogers. Elise is in love with Matt Rogers. (laughs) I can see why. I have a type. Uh... (laughs) Every, all but one of the men I've dated before John are now in relationships with other men. I love me a sensitive young man. Matt Rogers embodies that. Um, I've had dreams about Matt Rogers. <laughs> like, just, I, I love this man. Elise, could you please tell the listeners what you once said to Matt Rogers in a dream? I'm not stupid, but I'm in love with him <laughs> in that I'm not stupid enough to know that we'd ever end up together because I'm not your type, but man, is he mine. So, <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. She, she dated a few gay men, ended up with a bisexual. It works out great. <laughs> yeah. Matt Rogers brings an effervescence to everything that he does. And he's having a heck of a summer in 2022 with Fire Island, which he co-starred in. And then did you- With Ian, did my you... friend Torian Miller. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And did you ever watch I Love That For You, Vanessa Bayer's Showtime show? Nope. Did, you'd love it. That's He's great in that show too. Oh, I, I mean, I do like Vanessa Bayer too. I, honestly, I've never heard of it. So 
And Molly Shannon is in that one as well. It's about um, kind of like a home shopping network. Um, it's it's hilarious and poignant and really great. Directed by Showalter, too. Yeah. So. Wow, this is has a lot of elements that I would enjoy. <laughs> mm-hmm. But Twink is just joy and energy incarnate. At one point, he asks another character, can you also taste songs? Which I thought was very emblematic. I love uh, that Twink is the drag star of the group. The Aaron Brockovich character episode oh was gosh. so funny. Yeah. <laughs> and Q-Force is overseen by Deputy Director V, which is voiced by Laurie Metcalf, the incomparable Laurie Metcalf. And V is the only high-ranking female official in the AIA, has always looked after Mary, wanted the best, but also kind of sees her own limitations within her role in terms of assigning things. And her character certainly grows throughout the show, and but is always an advocate for everything that Q-Force is doing. Especially, I don't know, John. It took her ten years to get on board with Q Force. Right, to the though. best she... of her, yeah, to the best of her ability, because she is the only female high-ranking official. Like she has her own limitations, and she starts off being realistic about that, being like, "Well, I can't be a champion for you guys. I'm trying to be a champion for myself." Mm-hmm. Completely fair. Yeah, especially when. She's under the thumb of director Dirk Chunley, which is just a great name. (laughs) Voiced by Gary Cole and playing the sort of archetypal homophobe, misogynist, wants all the power to himself, is not afraid of all the secrets that he has in his head, doesn't want anyone else to have anything unless they are a red-blooded American male. A red-blooded American male like Buck, who is voiced by David Harbour, who ends up sort of taking over the field responsibilities for Q-Force. And he definitely has the same sort of homophobic tendencies as director Chun-Li, but is more so just an ignorant meathead. He just wants to assert himself and look dominant and have sex with the princess of... Jordoviar? What is the name of the co- the country? It's Genorvia, but... Yes, Genorvia. We could dive into the history of Genorvia right after this quick commercial break. I have such a problem with J names. It's G. <laughs> and now a word from our sponsors. Hi, this is Ian, and I'm trying to do this commercial as quickly as possible. Please review and rate us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Hive Social at One and Done TV. Email us oneanddonepod at gmail.com with any suggestions or thoughts. If you haven't hit the skip forward 15 seconds button yet, I will be amazed. Okay, enjoy the show. As we discussed before, this is very much structured, I feel like, like a longer James Bond movie in that there's a couple side missions in there that are all sort of serving one general story arc that lasts throughout the entire season. So I thought to break it down, 
we could do some mini exposition dumps. So the first big mission happens after the pilot where they basically decide we've had enough. We as an agency, as a team, are going to go rogue. And so they are on the hunt to stop a uranium deal that happens after they capture a Kazakh man who frequents gay clubs. That sort of takes them across a few different areas and it ends them up in the fictional country of Genorvia. As Ian, Ian, can you try to say it one more time? Genorvia? Genorvia. I got it. There we go. Jamie, got it. <laughs> Excellent work. Which is also the home of Europe Vision. It was so interesting that like everything was just a little bit off. I feel like they just didn't want to get sued. But yeah, I don't know. It's It's always funny to me when... This is not the first show or movie to just make up a European-sounding country. And well, I don't know why that's such a thing. Well, this whole thing, Genorvia, this whole thing, the country and Princess Papadopoulos is a reference to Mia Thermopolis in Genovia, which is Princess Diaries. Oh, my gosh. One of the one of the things I love about this show is like all of the references, both like big and overarching. So that's like why everything is like that. Um but also just like the little ones and all of the one-liners that they have too. Yeah. There's a lot of references to like specific remixes that I didn't know about or people. I think my favorite really specific reference is there's one scene during this first sort of arc where in order to get through a firewall, Stat needs to answer lesbian-specific trivia And luckily, they're at a lesbian barbecue. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And it's all about, like, different pollens and adoptions, like pet adoptions. And then the one question that starts, that everyone answers, it just starts with this film, and everyone just says, Carol. (laughs) Which I loved. And yeah, the entire Mira Thermopolis backstory is Princess Diary. And then she just throws in... And also I banged Chris Pine yeah, to reference the second Princess Diaries movie. Oh, I didn't, I did not get why there were a lot of Chris Pine jokes happening for like two episodes (laughs) and I did not know he was in the second Princess Diaries. Somebody didn't watch Princess Diaries 2 Royal Engagement with their grandmother. (laughs) No, but some of us went with you and your parents to a pre-screening of the first Princess Diaries when we were in middle school. That we did. So you should remember Genovia. <laughs> You'd think so, but all I remember is the ice cream being dumped on her. Oh. oh. So you just remember awesome. the most traumatic parts. <laughs> yeah, well, or the most ice cream-related parts. <laughs> but Mira Thermopolis, Papadopoulos. Papadopoulos. Thermopolis is Princess Diaries. Mira Papadopoulos is voiced by Stephanie Beatriz from Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I always love hearing Stephanie Beatriz's real voice because it's so different than her character on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. It's so not Rosa. Well, and she's in Con- the Encanto. Yeah. The, the lead in that. Yeah. She sings the heck out of that, too. Mm-hmm. That's the sort of culmination of the 
uranium deal. They are able to thwart this big uranium deal, which kind of gets them in good with the AIA, uh, Q-Force does. And that sort of kicks off this next phase, which is much more of a noir feel around West Hollywood. There's even one episode that's called WeHo Confidential, a reference to LA Confidential, where there is a sort of rich uber billionaire named uh, Chaston Barkley. Again, the show has a great ear for names and the eye for just naming weird things. But he's Chaston by- Barkley. <laughs> yeah, he's a good evil billionaire. Or yeah. I think later he um, Mary is like, oh my gosh, how could I have ended up with the only evil billionaire? Something like that. <laughs> Well, and his sidekick is Toluca Lake, which I also love. <laughs> and he's voiced by Dan Levy, too, which I didn't recognize Dan Levy's oh, voice there. Oh, sure. Okay. Yeah. There's a real, like, murderer's row of voice talent in this show. Can we just take a second to recognize that? Like, Sam Richardson's in here. Jenny mm-hmm. Slate. Jane mm-hmm. Lynch. Jane Lynch. Mm-hmm. Fortune Feimster. Mm-hmm. Melissa Villasenor, Nisi Nash. I, there were so many people that I recognized that I adored. And it made me very happy to hear even just small snippets of them. I love Nisi Nash. And she is a key figure in this sort of third phase of the show, too, which is all about this project that gets revealed called Grayscale. Essentially, V finds out that she has had her memories blocked and used to have a partner in the agency who's voiced by Nisi Nash. And they're out trying to uncover this plot, Grayscale, which turns out to be an initiative from the AIA to essentially put all of the outwardly gay members, agents of the AIA into a small community where they are all having their memories blocked. And that's a way to sort of sequester them, which, yeah, I thought was a cool way to dive into what this bigger agency meant to all the characters and sort of kicked off this idea of why are we trying to impress a system that has never cared about us and systemically has done a lot in order to put us down or literally erase them because they literally erased all their memories and I- just like the name grayscale and like with the rainbow being the the symbol of gay pride just like sucking the color sucking the memory suck you know like neutralizing them essentially i didn't even put that together i thought that was just an old person thing i i don't know but that's kind of why you know, just like putting all of their pictures into grayscale. I think you're totally right. I could not figure out why it was called grayscale. That didn't even occur to me. But I think you're 100% on that. It's it's a silly show with like really silly references and jokes. But I, but it's really smart too. And just like I was honestly surprised at how like you guys were talking about, you know, the through story being much more than we were expecting. It's it's poignant, too. Yeah, yeah, and that storyline in particular shows it gets a conversation going about being oppressed, being suppressed, you know, actively, systemically, like you said, John. And it 
touches since most of these characters are queer, you know, they have a bone to pick with this system and they we get a little bit of how each of them has been oppressed, but we never really dwell on it. Like it's a really good way of talking about it and addressing it and in a fantastical way uh, demolishing it without being too serious about it. Mm-hmm. No. It, it does take its characters seriously, but not itself seriously. Like, it respects its characters enough to let them be people, I think, within these archetypes that it sort of puts them in. And it does take a while, I think, for the show to reveal that side of itself. I think it probably takes about four or five episodes for the characters, for me to have felt invested in what is actually happening to these people. I think it's after... So Deb, as I mentioned, is married. And there's a point during the sort of first arc of the show where Deb's wife gets kidnapped. And I think that's a real turning point in terms of understanding the stakes of the characters and what they're actually fighting for. Yeah, the plot of the show, too, there's a thread of she is trying to keep her professional life a secret from her personal life, but she is trying to have both and also is encouraging Mary to find his own personal life as well. And that comes to a head when she's kidnapped. Yeah. And it also leads to Mary having his own relationship that sort of falls apart throughout the show with uh, Benji, who's voiced by the creator, uh, Gabe Liebman. And Mary, again, has this sort of crisis of, this is what I've been fighting for my entire life. How am I just supposed to let that go in order to let myself be happy? It almost feels selfish at times. Uh, Yeah, John, you know what? We have so much to talk about. How does the show end? The show ends with a big old showdown where Grayscale, as a initiative, sort of gets abolished and the former agents are let out of their cages, which I love the kill code that is used for Grayscale, which is- I wrote it down too. So did I. (laughs) Can we all try to say it at the same time? Ready? Uh, Hold on. Ready? One, two, three. Deborah Winger Winger has has been been in enough enough movies. movies. (laughs) Which is a phrase no gay person would ever utter in their lifetime. Hear or say. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Have we seen her, as we would say to uh, her as she was being pitched the ranch, get ready for an unlikely comeback? (laughs) I love. And so Grayscale, though, is just one of the many sort of secrets of the AIA that eventually get destroyed because the because Qforce finds the server, transfers all the data to this plane that is owned by the princess, Papadopoulos of Genorvia. But the princess has ulterior motives because she wants to take over the throne of her country and use the secrets of the American government to sort of position their country in a series place of power. And so it leads to this huge fight at the Pride Parade in Genorvia, where the princess is trying to use mind control devices to basically create, as one of the characters calls it, an army of zombie gays to help defend the crown, but Q-Force is able to thwart all of it. And then they get ready for their next mission, 
And that's how the season ends. Yeah, er, it also ends with, um, so in the middle of it, Mary breaks up with his boyfriend because he sees that he's putting him at too much risk. He's lying to him too much. He can't be honest. So he has a thing where it's like, I break up, I'm breaking up with you even though I like you so much and we're so good together and we love each other, but I have to leave because I'm bad for you. And at the end, he's about to tell him the truth. And then that's how the season ends. Mm-hmm. It's a wild ride, a lot of layers. And I think there definitely was more to go. Gabe Liebman, I saw an interview with him where he just said, I had a bunch of ideas for season two. I wonder if that's going to come up in some other form. This season felt like a like the first act of a bigger story. So like in the first act of a story of a three act part, you would have, this is the way everything is, but now everything changes. And that's, that's the first season of this is everything is AIA. They kind of demolish AIA and they become the most powerful force in AIA pretty much. And going forward, it's would probably be like, what is this new world we're living in where Q-Force has much more of a say in what goes on? Well, now that we've gotten through the whole plot of Q-Force, I think let's take a quick commercial break and we'll be right back with some Dunzo Awards. And now a word from our sponsors. It's time for the Dunzo Awards. These are the superlatives that we give out to all of the shows that we watch. It could be the best, it could be the worst, it could be the most, it could be the weirdest. Whatever it is, we have decided to give elements of this show the credit that they so very, very much deserve. We will each get two Dunzo Awards to give out. And with our guest of honor, I believe you should give out your first Dunzo Award. Unless Ian has... Any serious objections? Not serious objections, but I do have some pretty funny joking objections that I'll keep to myself. That's probably for the best. They're hilarious, though. They're so funny, but I I just, I'm not going to share them. The (laughs) listeners can't handle it, for sure. So, Elise, what is your first Dunzo Award? So, I couldn't let it go to anybody or any thing else. My first Dunzo Award is to the most multi-hyphenated performance. And this goes to my love, Matt Rogers. Uh, (laughs) So um, Matt, via or according to his podcast, started off just as a staff writer in the writing room. Um, By the time it was time for a table read, they had not found anybody right to play the role of Twink. Um, So he sat down next to Shantae's at the Hayes at the table read, um, read through, and then was essentially offered the part. So we have writer, we have performer. And then in two of the songs in the Europe Vision competition, he was the singer for both of them. We have a triple threat here. And so I felt he was in, he was deserving of a Dunzo. Twink does bring a lot of levity, I feel like, especially since. Twink and Stat, too, I think have kind of the lowest stakes conflicts of the show. But Twink is always just looking to have the best time. 
and it makes all of Twink's appearances so joyous, but he also will get really upset if you forget his birthday and it'll it'll devastate him. Well, and better than the movie Master of Disguise, this show makes a Master of Disguise seem so needed for any good spy team. <laughs> so they had yes. so many uses for, for Twink. Yeah. That's how they defeat Miss Princess in the end, is Twink. That's right. Yeah. Ian, what is your first Dunzo Award? My first Dunzo Award goes to the most supportive couple which is, of course, Deb and Pam, possibly Aww. the most supportive couple on TV. <laughs> like after Pam gets kidnapped and Deb has to confess her real life to her, uh, Pam is too concerned with V's emotional health to really get mad at Deb for anything. She goes, I didn't know you were a spy, which we'll deal with in therapy, but I do know you'll regret abandoning your team. And uh-huh. she, they just support each other constantly. Another good Pam quote was, the first time I saw you in Palm Springs mixing your own sunscreen at the salad bar, I thought, that's the most confident woman I've ever seen. <laughs> and... They just had a really good, sweet relationship that led to... The show has a lot of funny, sweet humor to it. Like, everyone's so emotionally supportive of each other that that it's funny, but it still makes you go, ah, you know? Or is like, that's a good relationship right there. Yeah. You know? Like, it doesn't feel... It doesn't feel sappy, or at least if it does feel sappy, it's because they want it to, you know? It does a really good job, I think, of giving those moments to its characters while also undercutting it enough so it doesn't feel, like, too saccharine. Like, uh, there's one part where Mary is trying to give a speech about how important they all are to each other, and I think it's Deb just goes, yeah, yeah, chosen family, we all love each other, blah, 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 whatever. Like... (laughs) There's still those moments where it's like, yeah, he's about to give a big speech and she's like, ah, I'm a spy and we need to do the spy thing. So just, I know what you're going to say. Let's do the spy thing. (laughs) Yeah. And Pam is also great sort of subversing the traditional person who is being lied to in those, Mm -hmm. in these spy things. Whereas the, that character is usually like, why did you lie to me? Why did you do that? Pam is just like, yeah, I understood why you lied to me and we're going to work through it. And I'm going to help you through it in that like she is how V is able to recover her wiped memories through her cracking her back, which I just thought was really interesting. Yeah, it was a whole plot point that Pam introduced by being into, she was like, you carry your worst memories in your back. So Mm -hmm. I've developed a, a way to massage people's backs that unlock memories, uh, unlock yeah. repressed memories. So not only is she supportive when she learns that she's being lied to, and or not only is she understanding, but supportive of her overall goal as well. Exactly. John, what's your first Dunzo? My first Dunzo award goes to, and this is also a Deb-related thing, but it will be for... Best car. (laughs) So 
Elise and I are proud owners of a Subaru Outback. We are <laughs> part of the cult of cars. We just found out the other week that oh we were able God. to adjust the rack on top of the Subaru Outback so that we could put kayaks on there. So, yes, the Subaru <laughs> is a majestic vehicle. And so the fact that Deb turns a Subaru Outback into a spy vehicle named Subaru McClanahan made me so happy. It could fly. It was bulletproof. It also came fully equipped with uh, Tracy Chaplin's entire discography. So you know it's a fast car. So you know it's a fast car. (laughs) And so, yes, special shout out to Subaru McClanahan, the real MVP of cars, and giving all Subarus the justice they deserve and the credit that they are so very owed. It's a wonderful vehicle. Yeah. Elise, what's your second Dunzo? My second Dunzo goes to the cartoon character I'd most like to look like, and that goes to Princess Papadopoulos. I just (laughs) (laughs) she was, I mean, like, the animation was great, but she specifically was, I mean, they did her justice. She was gorgeous. She was the brunette beauty you've, you've always tried to be. She was like a mix between Allison Brie in cartoon form and Anastasia. Like, I was thinking Anastasia. She I was just, just about like to Anastasia, say Anastasia, which I loved growing up. So she, yeah. Yep. <laughs> the true story of Anastasia or the movie version? Not Disney. It's not a Disney movie. Correct. It's Fox, I believe. Yeah. The uh, the cartoon version of, I mean, I, I'll leave the tragic <laughs> real version to, uh, to the historians. But and yeah. to the stage musical. Yes. I said I wanted to look like her. I didn't want to you be don't, evil. You don't, you don't want to be evil? There's no. not a part of you that wants to be evil? No. But why was she evil? Because there was a system put in place that oppressed her. Yes. Yes. It's she could only be powerful in her country if she had a man's approval and she was married. So, I mean, I'm going to blame the patriarchy, but I'm not going to hold her as my you know, role model. So does Deb. Deb is like, uh, I think who's more at fault than her is this uh, patriarchal society that makes her have to get married in order to become a fascist. Yeah. Yeah. Well, or a dictator, I think. I will not blow the horn of objection at that Dunzo. And for the record, I think you're more wonderful than the princess ever could be. Well, thank you. But she looks beautiful. <laughs> Ian, what is your second Dunzo? My second Dunzo goes to my favorite spy gadget, which was, of course, the spy sex watch. First button dispenses Viagra. Second button dispenses lube. Third button dispenses one long strand of spaghetti. What do we need one long strand of spaghetti for? In case you need a lady in the tramp. (laughs) (laughs) Why... That's by gadget as opposed to all of the other wonderful spy gadgets that were in this show. What made that one stand out? Was it was it the spaghetti? Were you just hungry? No, because I'm not eating gluten right now, so I wouldn't be eating that spaghetti. I would be eating <laughs> our I'd be eating our chickpea based noodles. Or does being gluten free make the spaghetti all that more enticing? Uh, no, actually, I don't, I'm like, eh, it's, it's heavy. It's really heavy. I don't need all that. Very good for you. Good for you. (laughs) It's been a couple months, so I'm, I'm, I'm past bread. 
Gotcha. Uh, I mean, I still had like a burger, you know, last week, but for I don't crave bread the way that I maybe used to. So that's good. It's going well. I personally liked, again, with Subaru McClanahan, uh, Rue's magnet mode, which was used at the very end to attract all of the, because all of the elderly people who had had their memories blocked as a part of the grayscale thing had metal backplates. And so in order to get them off, they used magnet mode on Subaru McClanahan. Why did they have magnet mode? In case they ever wanted to have a picnic and it's really windy out. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, John, why don't you round us out with your last Dunzo? Okay. My second Dunzo goes to the show within the show that I would most want to watch. And that would have to be Cobblestones. The show that Stat is obsessed with throughout the show. It's a Genorvian soap opera, presumably about demons who have sex with nuns and then their inner workings. There are apparently, I think, 48 seasons of this soap opera. And the little details that we get throughout it are wonderful. It ends with Stat sort of rummaging around the cobblestone studios and she wants to take a bunch of pictures with the nun's outfits, and she says, that's where Jesus that's where Jesus got pregnant, I think was one of the lines. Yes. <laughs> Cobblestones just sounds like a fascinating watch, and I, I loved Stat's passion, especially since Stat was such a sort of internal character, just wanted to be left alone. I think Stat could have been really one note, but... The fact that she did care about things, they just weren't the things that other people cared about. It was nice to have that extra detail. It gave her a little bit more depth because, you know, when she started, for example, dating the artificial intelligence that she stole from Genorvia, who turned into her girlfriend and her AI girlfriend ended up sacrificing herself for the safety of some of the other Q-Force members. That made it a little bit more important. I mean, I got to think that the AI rope that the girlfriend robot would come back in some form at some point. But that was just a part of the show where I couldn't believe that they killed off that character so quickly. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just like V is their superior officer and she we find out this secret memory of hers and she has to go off the grid you know, really quickly. Like I felt like this show in general introduces stuff and then it like it really the pace of the story throughout the season goes much quicker than I would have thought. Like, you know how a lot of shows will have to change things up around season like three or four, you know, to introduce newer characters, kill someone off, whatever, to like create some drama. Um, I felt like this show did that stuff really quickly within episodes. Do do you know what I mean, John? Absolutely. Like, it does a really good job at injecting a lot of not just pop culture references, but like intra-world references so that you could sort of lay those breadcrumbs that things could come back, people could come back, mentions could be made throughout a couple episodes. Like, one of the interesting ones was... 
they're at, Deb and Mary are at a conference called Intellicon, which had one of my favorite visual gags, actually, where it was a spy conference. And the banner to it said, normal conference, nothing to see here. (laughs) (laughs) And they meet up with uh, a guy voiced by Sam Richardson. I can't remember the character's name. But he's ultimately brought back as the sort of spy that needs to bring Mary and V in because of V's betrayal. And he's like, we were best friends. It's like they clearly weren't. But the fact that Sam Richardson's character thought that they were, it was yeah, just Mary a Mary keeps little... going, what? He's <laughs> like, I, I can't believe I'm being hunted down by my best friend or I just got beaten up by my best friend. It's like this is a one-sided friendship, clearly. <laughs> Yeah, but they were able to sort of put those in throughout that it still made sense when things came back, but and it didn't like detract too much from it. And I think one thing that kind of illustrates your point, Ian, about the way that it clipped along, I mean, it was, each episode was 25 minutes. I think it was definitely made for Netflix to be like binged all in one point. A lot mm. of the episodes ended in cliffhangers. The Uranium episode ended with Pam being abducted, so you definitely wanted to watch the next one. The Europe Vision episode ended with V finding out that she used to have a partner and that her memory was wiped. And then that Grayscale episode ends with V saying, so we got to talk about Karen. And then it's just, like, you know, like you, it clips along very yeah, great great point. It really does make you want to binge at least three episodes in a row. The Karen thing I do want to talk about for a second because I wasn't as invested in the story, but I thought it also had some of my favorite lines of the show. Where So Karen is V's former partner who is sort of fakes her death in order for V to find her and so they can take down the AIA from the outside. And she comes back when they're sort of reinvigorating this initiative to kill the grayscale well mission. So V had her mind wiped by AIA. So she was supposed to like come back and get her in a year, but she mm-hmm. had her uh, memory erased. So then Karen ends up living in the woods for like 25 years and kind of going insane like low key insane at first she don't know she is, but then she starts introducing them to like all of her plans. And she like drew this map of the plan and it's like a child drew just a, (laughs) just a simple crayon drawing. It's like an Eiffel tower and then an X right next to it. And it's like, okay, this is not helpful. We're going to set off the nuclear bomb just far enough away from the Eiffel tower so that we can still go to the Eiffel tower. As uh, V says, she lost all of her marbles, which is a shame because she was great at Mancala. <laughs> yes. I got that too. Speaking of great at Mancala, I always beat Natalie. Mm-hmm. Congratulations. <laughs> we've a, yeah, we've got a set here, and uh, I don't think I've ever lost. That's impressive. <laughs> Natalie, here's how you beat Ian and Mancala. Knock him out with some sort of pipe or wrench. Choke me with the marbles in my sleep. <laughs> there you go. Just one by one. Get him to go hunting, which led to one of my other favorite lines about Karen when they're going out to forage for food and somebody complains about something and Karen says, well, you let our meat get away. And they say, it was a German shepherd with tags. And she said, well, the tags means it's fresh. (laughs) 
One of my other favorite lines from um, this portion, this storyline. Um, so they use Karen's map to try to find the secrets that the AIA have. Um, so they go to this remote island, which I don't know if you guys caught it, but it was called like the Cower de la Mar. Cour de la Mar. The Cour de la Mar, excuse mm-hmm. me. Do you guys know what that is re- referencing? Is it referencing the jewel in Titanic? It sure is, Ian. Oh, my yes. God. It is the I, heart of the ocean. <laughs> I've actually never seen all of Titanic, and I still know that. Wow. Yeah, well, I I didn't know that. I had to look it up, but I was like, this has to be a reference to something. And then when they finally get there, it is like the neck, like a huge jewel of or. Yeah, um, her. I'm ocean glad necklace. you brought that up because I got it without getting it. Until, yeah, like I was, it was familiar to me, and now that you bring it up, I I know what they're doing. Nice. nice. So when they're trying to find um, this location, they're searching through this island, this remote island, through the forest, and Mary says, "So we're in the most dangerous, top secret location in the world, and we have no idea where we're going." And then Twink says, okay, that is literally verbatim what I said to Ben Platt when we got lost at Barbara Streisand's basement mall. And I, I just like So that. funny. It's just like so specific. And that's exactly what I loved about this show. I forgot about that. What's the deal with Barbara Streisand's basement mall again? Like she has a mall in her basement? It's literally like, I don't know if it's the way she stores things, but it looks like an indoor mall. And she literally has like a room of dolls. And on the outside, it's like, you know, it looks like a doll store. And then she has a confectionery. Like, I don't, it's right. insane. I, I feel like this was a big thing a couple years ago, right? Yeah. 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 So funny. I had forgotten about that until that line. Yeah. Barbara's be shopping. Barbara's <laughs> be shopping. There's also some great specific stuff. I love how they kept putting down the banks that were participating in Pride. I wrote that down too. Yes. Tur- TurboTax colon gay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Call me Wells Fargo because I'm about to participate in Pride for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> love that stuff. Yeah. But again, it's all, it goes into that idea of I've, it really felt like the writer's room was just a group of friends that had these specific references that they wanted to throw in just to make each other laugh. Mm-hmm. And that's the that's the part of the writing that I definitely most enjoyed. Um, then, since we're just throwing out quotes, I just want to throw out, <laughs> I'm not gay, my arms are just big. <laughs> Which I'm like, I don't even get it. I just think it's funny. Uh, well, V said that, so maybe it's like a woman. Mm. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, another one was, if I die, remember me with this small of a waist and this big of an ass. <laughs> just how we all want to be remembered, for sure. Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah. I also had one more, just as if we're doing this. Please. Uh, so it's when Deb is trying to coach Twink and how, as the princess, um, to seduce, what's his name? Buck. Buck, yeah. Um, to seduce Buck. Um Somebody said, wow, Deb, for a lesbian, you're great at seducing straight men. And then she said, straight men are just lesbians with longer cargo shorts, fewer skills, and evil in their hearts. <laughs> yeah. On that note, it is about time we take a quick commercial break and then talk about why this show got canceled. And now a word from our sponsors. 
the show was canceled about nine months after the 10 episodes originally aired in September of 2021. At least that's when the cancellation was confirmed. This is the interesting part about why the show is canceled. I dug and I dug and I dug, and I could not find any actual confirmation from Netflix that this show was canceled. It was only confirmed by like Sean Hayes or something? By Matt Rogers, actually. Yeah. He appeared on this podcast, the Attitudes podcast. Rogers was co-hosting this podcast, I guess, and they were talking about the show, and he was like, yeah, it got canceled. He said, the people who loved it really loved it. The good news is that it will always be on Netflix. It did not get a second season, but I feel like the fact is that it's out there and it's really close to my heart. And then that's sort of how the word got out that the show was canceled. So the fact that Netflix never even said one way or another that it got canceled, I find to be really interesting. But it, it clearly was. They clearly informed the creative team and Gabe Liedman's also spoken out since then saying, you know, I had a bunch of ideas for season two about where this could go, but we're just not going to have the opportunity to do that. And so I have to think that the show really was kind of just buried by Netflix after it's less than ideal critical reception and... Frankly, too, it just seems that Netflix's creative strategy is a bit all over the place right now. I mean, I got to say, too, 23% is a really harsh critical reaction, considering there are very clever things about the show. I mean, it's a little bit, you know, gross is the wrong word, but it's like, you know, there's nudity in it and stuff. There's, It's vulgar, but it's not stupid. You and know. so are a lot of other shows that are yeah. in a similar category. Exactly. I mean, it, I get why it would have a bigger audience score than critical score, but that seems pretty harsh to me. Uh, yeah. I got to think that's part of it. Netflix famously does not release their numbers, but I got to think that it wasn't watched a ton because they did not advertise it a ton. And it's very strange because... This is still, when this was released, this was still, you know, it was post-Delta, pre-Omicron. You know, we still thought maybe the pandemic could be keeping us inside for another couple of years. Like, you know, we didn't know. So they invested, there was a lot invested into cartoons at this point in time. And I do not understand why they would cut a property like this short when it's LGBTQ. It's a spy show, which I can't think of any other LGBTQ spy shows. And it's an adult cartoon. It seems like it would fit a perfect niche for people if they would just put it out there. And I don't think they did. I think one of the big things that went against it, and this is from a lot of the criticism that I read of the show when I was going through those Rotten Tomatoes on Rotten Tomatoes, was some were just calling the jokes dull, but a lot of them were talking about how it sort of plays into gay stereotypes, which it does, but I think it uses archetypes. And I I mean, this is my experience. And if anyone has their, their feelings about it, I understand. But I do, I saw these characters as archetypes that were 
sometimes sub- being subverted, but also, you know, enjoyed. And what you what you said earlier was that they used those specific types of people in the queer community to actually give the characters more depth and more specificity, which came across to me, at least watching the show. It didn't feel like it was out of mouse. It didn't feel like it was making fun of queer people. It felt like there were definitely times where it was making fun of queer culture, but it didn't feel like any of the characters were being put on blast for who they were. No, it was like in a self-aware way. I mean, yeah. And one of the things that me and John talked about, uh, especially on our Bob Patterson episode, check it out, is (laughs) that when it comes to humor that is particularly offensive, because it's not like it's not like we don't laugh at dark humor or there aren't like jokes that are offensive to other people that based on our better judgment or not, we still laugh at for this sort of what we came to the conclusion of was it feels worse when people are laughing at someone that's not in the room. Mm-hmm. And this show's sense of humor always felt like whoever or whatever they were making fun of was in the room and was a part of the conversation. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and that doesn't say that they are the ultimate representation of sure. their place in culture and society, but at least it's coming from some place of experience rather than some sort of perceived idea of what that experience is. Yeah, like I saw a gay person in a movie once. Here's how I'm going to write this gay character. Yeah. Yeah. I saw this one sort of blurb from a queer publication that was on Rotten Tomatoes' review roundup that said, much like a drag show, some viewers may find Q-Force a bit over the top. For us, it's an exercise in LGBTQ love and a very fun adventure to boot. And I I felt that love a lot in the show, more so than I felt the stereotypes. And I think that one of the criticisms that you saw too, Elise, right, was that the idea of the trailer that came out really put people off. Yeah, I think A, trailers on Netflix in general are very long and don't represent the show very well. Um, I did see that as a criticism on, I think it was like the IMDb page that people were commenting on. So I went back and watched it. I don't think that it uh, did the show justice. It kind of tried to lean into the spy stuff a lot, which the storyline was great, but when you take snippets of different storylines and then you put in a quip here and a quip there, I I don't think it was a great trailer that represented the show well. Yeah, it's interesting to me. So action in animation Uh, which I've been thinking about a lot because recently Family Guy was my fall asleep show. And over the course of like four months, I just kind of fell asleep to seasons like four through whatever the newest one was. And it um, caught me up on what Family Guy's like style is now. And a lot of it is like, okay, funny premise at the beginning and, you know, joke, joke, joke. And then in so many episodes, there's like a long action sequence in it. And 
it's like loud and they're like running around or shooting each other or, you know, there's like a, an action adventure thing going on. And I just don't care at all because <laughs> it's not yeah. impressive to see cartoons doing these things. It's impressive to see real people doing these scenes or pulling off some sort of movie magic. So I was very aware of that when I watched this show and what I liked about what this show had to offer in its action, in its spy stuff, in its espionage, was that they usually had some sort of creative gay solution to whatever's going on. I, I mean, not to use the word gay too loosely, but you know what I mean? Like, it, it was just, you know, between Twink's ability to become a character... Or Pam's, uh, you know, you could see this like sort of butch lesbian type knowing everything about cars and having a bunch of pit bulls as being playing off of some sort of stereotypes. But it was like her character had very creative solutions to things or even like they're in the middle of of a chase sequence and somebody breaks a window and she's like, Oh, you know, I could fix that window for you really cheap. Like, <laughs> like it all had a, a purpose to the characters, to the narrative, to the point of the story. It was not frivolous. And it played into their strengths as opposed to any sort of flaw about them. And the characters certainly had their flaws. You know, Twink was a little self-obsessed uh, Stat was a little like tunnel visioned. Steve was very sort of uh, on his own ego a few times. But when it came to the solutions, it wasn't anything. Yeah, like you said, it wasn't frivolous. It was playing into their strengths as as people. And I did enjoy that for sure. And Ian, they weren't just pit bulls. They were 16 trauma dogs. <laughs> Thank you. I think there were 16 traumatized pit bulls which is why you needed that you know they couldn't let them be around people because they didn't know how they'd interact mm -hmm. all that being said i do want to do just want to say one thing as well about the state of adult animation in streaming because i think we're in an interesting period where streaming services are able to pick up adult animation that can be a little bit raunchy because it's not necessarily beholden to the same standards as cable or broadcast TV, which is giving us a lot more sort of cool stuff. And I think if this show were on a platform like HBO Max, where they do seem to be fostering a really cool collection of adult animation, like Close Enough, which is an absolutely hilarious show that kind of has an Adult Swim vibe to it, or like uh, Tuca and Birdie, which is another Netflix one-and-done show that got picked up by HBO later on, which doesn't seem like this is going to be the fate of Q-Force. So I think there are homes for this show and this humor, and I want to see more of it. And I hope that Netflix kind of figures out what it actually wants to do with the content it acquires. I, I do have a friend that uh, pitches to Adult Swim somewhat regularly. And during COVID, maybe this is why it was on my mind so much with this episode, 
was he was told that basically they're only interested in investing in known properties, you know, like like Rugrats was just rebooted, you know, on Nickelodeon, stuff like that, or a property that's um, created by a known entity like Andy Sandberg, like Sean Hayes. So it's interesting. Like uh, Mike Schur, who is an executive producer on Q-Force, too. Exactly. So if that's their model and that's the thing they're banking on, then why are you cutting its legs out from underneath it? Like, you chose that lane, then do it, okay? Otherwise, stop being such horrible gatekeepers to original ideas. Fully agree. Fully agree. So... With that, I'll throw the question, Elise, to you. Would you renew? I would definitely renew. (laughs) I think um, it's interesting because, like you said before, we watched the first episode and then never went back. Well, then went back to it when we were going to watch it for the podcast. And I've been thinking about why we did that. I think, um, like we kind of talked about earlier, um, it did take until the second or third episode to kind of realize that it wasn't going to be a superhero spy show that had kind of a same cyclical story every single time. And to be honest, I don't know that I fully paid attention enough the first time we watched it to give it its due. I am distracting. <laughs> uh, so I I really enjoyed it. I thought it was really smart. I loved all of the references. I, I'm going to say I don't watch a lot of spy shows, but I did not see any of the twists coming, and there were many of them. Um, I thought it was really funny. I would definitely watch more seasons if they came out with more. Now, Ian, the question goes to you. Would you read? I would. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious at this point that I, I liked it. Um, but like you just said, Elise, I didn't really expect to. At first glance, I thought this was kind of a novelty show. Mm-hmm. Like the hook was that they're gay, you know, and I did not. Well, I didn't even know. I didn't know Sean Hayes was involved, who I do like as a producer. He has some very interesting uh, Hazy Mills works on some interesting properties. Um, I didn't know Mike Sure was involved. I didn't know any of the creative team at all. Well, I didn't. I didn't know Wanda Sykes was in it. You know, it just surface value seemed like something that like the companies they were making fun of in the show was probably just trying to profit off of the conversation going on right now. And I thought it would be uh, just like Archer where it's a different mission every time. And it wasn't anything that I expected it to be. And I, you know, I've talked on this show many times too about how it's like, just surprise me. I don't even, I would, I want a show to surprise me more than I want a show to be good. If, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. And this show did both. It had a clear voice. It had solid, unique characters. Uh, It played on what we knew about spy shows while introducing new aspects uh, to it. Like you said, I was surprised by the twists. 
Um, everyone was funny. Sean Hayes does not necessarily, his voice didn't fit the character to me at first, but pretty quickly I became invested as this is this character. This is not just Sean Hayes's voice in this cartoon. And it, it totally wrote me in. I think it's also a really easy show to watch. Like with some shows with good plots, I feel the need to really sit down and pay attention. But if this show was just kind of on, I could appreciate it uh, just as much as sitting down and really watching it. And for that reason, it's like if your friends are watching it, you could sit down, watch 10 minutes, enjoy it. And then keep, you know, cooking or doing whatever you're doing. So I think this show has a lot to offer. And uh, I hope it gets the Toucan Birdie treatment. So, John, would you renew? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Of course. Yeah. For all the reasons that have been said. And also, the big thing that I think about when I think about this question is, do I want to see more of these characters? Do I want to see more in this situation, in this world? And the answer is absolutely, I do. I could see it's the same reason I would want to go back to like James Bond movies and stuff. You know, it could be follow some sort of a similar thing, but there's always going to be something exciting. There's always going to be some fun line. There's going to be characters that I am invested in now, especially after, you know, like you said, that third or fourth episode. I'm not expecting a show to know its entire voice right at the pilot. And if a show keeps improving throughout its run and I, there was a point where I was like, I don't want to finish this show right now because I'm invested in it. Because then it's over. And that's a really good feeling to have. And I, I'm i bummed. I hope I'm excited to keep seeing what these writers do uh, in their own projects. And I know they are because they're all very successful. And this really seems to be, seemed to have been unfortunately using past tense here, a project that they were really, they really cared about and just seemed like a really fun use of time. And I wanted more and I'm looking forward to seeing more. And if I see any writers that are popping up on other shows that I recognize from this show, I will check them out in a heartbeat. So yeah, big, big thumbs up. Glad we, we came to this, place of agreement as a group as a triumvirate uh any lingering thoughts that we have before we finish this up well a triangle is the strongest shape john (laughs) geometrically and a quibby is the most interesting unit of time which was another show thing the show did that he said i have to jet in 10 quibbies (laughs) which i thought was really funny too i super enjoyed that but that's all i have Elise, any other? No, I just want to thank you guys for letting me come on, especially for this show. I really enjoyed it. and Yeah, thanks. Well, you were an absolute pleasure. I'm glad I could lend something something to the conversation. Uh, there's one thing that Mary says. That was the scariest thing that ever happened to me, and I choke on my food alone at my apartment a lot, <laughs> which uh, Natalie was watching at that point, and she laughed really hard when that came up. I just thought the show did a really good job of mixing in just little everyday truths like that uh, as well. Like, it was never a big, I don't know, like, there's a lot of action, there's a lot of 
uh, plot. There's a lot of good character development, but they'd still be able to throw in little lines like that where you go, I do that too. <laughs> and it just, it connects pretty well. I, um, yeah, it's a good show. One more line like that when Mary meets uh, his boyfriend's parents and his parents make like a bunch of food and Benji goes, oh, look, you've made every food I've ever mentioned. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Little things like that. But thank you so much for joining us on this uh, on this force, Elise. Ian, where can people find us? You can find us at One and Done TV on Instagram and Twitter. You can email us one and done pod at gmail.com. You can Venmo me at Hamill Chin. You can enjoy a Lodge pan scraper. Have you two tried yours out yet? It's still in the container. <laughs> no, it's not. A, oh, I you not, took it out? Yeah, I took okay. it out. Yes. Did you use it? I have not used it yet, but thank you so much, Natalie, for sending us a Lodge pan scraper. I can't wait to use it. <laughs> I was hoping you would have a glowing review for me, Elise. I will come on next week and let you guys know my thoughts. I'm sure they will be positive. Yeah, I'm going to need at least in, you to insert an audio blurb about how much it's changed your life, how much better your marriage is now, how healthy your skin is now that you use it because you stress less. Perfect, um, yeah. Yeah, all the good things that it brings to life. Can't wait for my life to change. That's not... <laughs> Let's not lie to the listeners either. You don't do dishes. Sometimes I do dishes. John does dishes a lot more than I do. Uh-oh. <laughs> and uh, you can learn how to do dishes when you watch How To with John Wilson. New season coming up, season three. Can't wait. Seasons one and two on HBO Max. Give it a look. It'll make you feel good about where you are in the world today. And with that, uh, if you don't mind, I would like to close out the episode with the first line of Q-Force. Do it. Bye, bitch. Brought to you by Lack of Hustle Media.